This is Mike Montero. I'm Erica Hall. This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. This is Voice of Design. Welcome to another episode of The Voice of Design. I'm Erica Hall. And I'm Larissa Berger. And we're coming to you from our secret basement headquarters here in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. And today we have a very, very special guest and longtime friend of Mule, uh, Nate Bolt. Hello. The founder of Ethnio and, uh, yeah, and and super cool guy. (laughs) Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us. And, uh, and so, Nate, you were up here in like the Bay Area for a really long time and you founded a company and you... Yeah, born and raised. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're born here? I don't know if I knew that. Yep. Born in SF General inside Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Zuckerberg Hospital. Ooh, don't say you were born inside Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you made it weird right yep. off the bat. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's good. Right. This well, is perfect. 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 Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. good way to kick that's, it off. That's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> yeah, what totally. we're going we for totally. We went here. there yeah. immediately. You're one of like five San Francisco natives. Yeah. And I left. And and you left. <laughs> it's very controversial. Uh, you went to where I'm from. Oh, no way. I didn't know that. Roughly, yeah. That's I'm, so funny. I'm from Los Angeles, but wh- wh- roughly what part of, of the great L.A., greater area are you in? We're in Los Feliz, near, near Silver Lake, Hollywood, that kind of. Okay, you know. the cool. You're in the cool place. <laughs> well, walkable, I would say. It's like a good landing pad from San Francisco because you're like, oh, okay. I don't have to actually sit in my car for everything. Because that's the worst. That is right. the worst. Right. Yeah. What part of LA are you from? Uh, I was uh, the first few years across from the uh, the airport, sort of in the Westchester area, until my house got eminent domain. And oh, are you serious for freeway or something? For the airport, it's a whole thing. Oh, for the airport! Whoa, that's crazy. Okay. Yeah. No, my grandmother fought the airport, and we were the only house for blocks no around. Way. And we got oh my God. written Amazing. up in the paper and everything. Yeah. Wow. I was raised by airplanes. Oh my. <laughs> and then, and then when she finally gave in, and this is, and my my uncle recently sent me the clipping in the newspaper from when she finally did a deal with City Hall, and they literally said that like the supervisors cracked champagne when <laughs> she gave up the fight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing story. But then we moved to the valley. Crazy. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. <laughs> so I, I am a Valley girl. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I was in elementary school when that song came out. So I had a, I had a strong branded <laughs> early. <laughs> That's funny. <clears throat> but yeah, cool. Uh, so yeah, so we wanted, we wanted to talk to you because you know, we, we love the research and our theme for this notional season of the voice of design is practice is the practice of uh of design and and research is still what i'm finding a somewhat mysterious practice to people yeah and i think at mule too we're always trying to kind of emphasize that it's a collaborative practice and that it's not a resource so you don't like inject research into a design project it's a practice that you have to kind of bring everything bring everyone in on. And Ethnio is like super helpful to that. Oh, so glad to hear. And totally agree. Yeah, it's funny, the collaboration part of it, it does get overlooked. It's interesting. Yeah, because uh, that, I mean, that's really the thing that we go around and talk to people about a lot because people think, oh, I'm just going to hire my, I'm going to find somebody really smart with like a PhD and I'm going to put them in the corner and they're going to make reports. And so we're committed to research. And what happens is the person with the most knowledge is the least involved in the design process, which is weird. So designers just end up like making decisions on one side of the building and the researchers are gathering information on the other. Yeah, it's totally true. Well, and it's hard just from the methodology standpoint, you know, people are more focused on the rigor on the research side, which is good, but it's almost should be flip-flop like the collaboration is way more important because the reports never 
sprout feet and walk around the building. They just sort of <laughs> oh, that's you know, such a good die way to put it. Lonely death. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's good. They just I, wither. <laughs> yeah, they die. They die unloved in the corner. And yeah. uh, and I was I was really excited uh, to talk to you because you know we had a, a, a chat earlier this week for the first time in a while because you're down in Los Angeles and you know we don't <laughs> mix the two halves of California. It's true. It's true. And. <laughs> and, you know, we're working with a, a client on a, a helping them understand how to do qualitative research. And we've just talked about the recruiting part. And so, you know, you had this consultancy, Bolt Peters. It was really cool. And then out of that, you created Ethneo, this awesome tool. And I was, I was telling you, like, that's really the only tool I recommend to people because people that's hook so on cool. to tools so fast. Right. It's like, oh, what's yeah. the tool? Because qualitative yeah. research seems so terrifying and fuzzy relative to just getting analytics or doing quant stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm like, you can use pencil and paper, but you got to get your setup and your recruiting right. So tell us a little bit about how you came to like make Ethneo and like what you're doing with it now. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, that chat we had totally inspired me. I mean, you really got me thinking about stuff that I haven't thought about in years because I've been so focused in the day to day, like basically being a, you know, a PM of, of a tiny SAS. And I sort of lost track of some of the original, I guess, sort of concepts or motivations. So it's kind of perfect timing that. So thank you again for that chat, Erica. That was awesome. And, you know, I think what originally got me and, and Sid Harrell, we were just, you know, you were just chatting with yesterday, interested in this stuff was the idea of attachment, your participant's attachment to whatever you're studying. Because most people to this day, I think, especially if you include market research in the arena of qual research, they focus more on getting people according to demographic criteria. Maybe product usage criteria is included in that, but it's never or it's rarely people's attachment to a need in the moment. And that's really what we used to focus on at Bull Peters. That's how Ethneo started. And, and what I mean by that is if you're talking about somebody that's getting ready to like plan a trip, you can talk hypothetically about trips with almost anybody, um, you know, depending on what you're doing and depending on how far the trip is. But when you have somebody that's leaving next Tuesday, the set of criteria, the types of mental models they have, the way they talk to you, the way they interact with your prototype or your app or whatever it is you're researching, they're so different. And that concept of attachment is often completely absent from the participant recruiting process. You know, so that's how we got into live intercepts. It was it's not that we're like always trying to do things live. There's certainly, you know, most most researchers both schedule and probably designers too. So you schedule sometimes, you do intercepts sometimes. You know, it's all they're all different mm -hmm. practices. But the whole point of the live thing is you get somebody in the moment who cares about what you're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's I don't know what do they call it attachment. I've never found a good word. I mean, it's only been 18 years, but so far I haven't found a good word for it. Yeah. Well, they're they're just in it. Like it's it's their mindset because yeah. what we've found is, you know, there's so much weird, con like, I, I hate being down in the methodology fights or the documentation yeah. fights. I always Especially like to- Especially the, like, how many people do you really need to talk to fight? Yeah. That's so uh, stupid. That one too. Yeah, there are all these, like, really dumb fights. And it's like, no, keep learning and keep trying to do better stuff and, like, make money and be successful and be cool, right? But everybody's like, no, is it personas? Is it jobs to be done? And people have these different ways, or is it like these demographic profiles, which are like the easiest way to just come up with something without really thinking too hard. Right. And people treat these patterns of behavior like they're static and just based on these stats or attributes about the person. It's totally, like, oh, totally. it's a 35-year-old woman who has a minivan right. and works as a software engineer. And that profile is always going to like shop at Whole Foods and buy clothes at Chico's and, and it's a total, right. it's like static and people, it's like, it's such right. a great point you make. And like, we don't even do the, the live intercept part of it, uh, too much, but it's the, the idea that people aren't static like that, you know, yeah. somebody's yeah. motivation, like there's all these studies about how, you know, juries make different decisions based on whether it's before or after lunch and things like that. So the yeah. moment you get somebody as well as like the, it's like, it might be the immediate moment or it might be just like where they are in their phase of life. Totally. Like we did work with Cornell about their um, development, their fundraising with alumni. And it was totally about like where somebody is in their life. And it's like, and yeah. that's to them. It's not just like yeah. what year since they graduated or how old they are. It's like what phase they are in a, in a process. And that process could be like living their whole life or deciding to go on a trip or, 
or buying a bike or or something like that. And it, and so when you catch that person is so important. Totally. Well, and yeah, you're, you know, I love the framing of it as this dynamic thing too, that the same person on a different day could be in such a different state that that would, might matter more to your research than if they're a certain demographic. I love that. And, you know, healthcare sometimes for us is one of those kind of extreme cases where it highlights a lot of these issues probably in many other fields. And like we've just been working on a case study with the Alzheimer's Society in the UK, and they've been talking about recruiting Alzheimer's and dementia caretakers and patients and people in the ecosystem and talk about something that's dependent on the moment because you get people in almost a state of crisis and building tools to really help them in that state, find the right information, you know, connect them with the right provider. It, you can go into a lab all day long with people who, you know, we need to just find people who have experienced this, who are going through this, but it's totally different than somebody that's like right actually in the middle of a crisis trying to find something. And that for them has just been like a total game changer, getting those type of participants who are real life in that moment looking for information. And I just think that that those kind of extremes can like shed light on like, yeah, actually, you know, somebody's reality that day or that second or that minute might be a better indicator of if they're a good participant for you than income and age and those kind of things. Yeah, I think that a lot of times when you introduce that complexity and you're internal to like a large organization, that can be really intimidating. Yeah. It just feels like, oh, well, then we can only rely on the quantitative stuff or like we just can't possibly yeah. know exactly enough to like make this research worthwhile. But that's why we really try to kind of keep this perspective that, you know, you just, I, I loved the um, stickers that your team like sent out. Oh, you saw those things. <laughs> yeah, they're on my laptop yeah. and because it's, it, it does introduce the, like this idea of getting people comfortable with it being messier. Yeah. And, and that's fascinating to me, um, that project that you mentioned, because actually um, my dad had Alzheimer's for 10 years. Yeah. And I feel like that did actually set me up for interface design in many ways, because the way that we were always communicating was like a moving target. And so you had to kind of like really for that day, constantly kind of be in a practice of kind of forgetting all of the attachments that you have to certain things and just like meet that person who's like dealing with um, kind of not always having clarity where they are right now, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. so much like what we need to do when we're designing interfaces. But a lot of times it does get kind of clouded by these like huge generalizations of like what's happening with, yeah, this kind of like more, I don't know how to put it per se, but it's almost like this kind of weird aspirational marketing and engineering right and engineering everybody totally. knows yeah. they're talking yeah. about ops they're talking about scale yep but when you're designing for people mm -hmm. people are messy right and organizations are still having trouble dealing with the fact that individuals are really messy and it is a matter of meeting them where they yeah. are and it is possible to do in a way that fits into whatever process you're doing, but you kind of have to, I think, em embrace that messiness and not try to pretend that people are these really tidy categories that they're not. Yeah. Well, and, and just to allow humans to talk to humans and not accidentally automate the process of human understanding is a huge tackle. Like you said, Erica, there are most organizations, most teams, design teams are awash in data. I thought that was a great point. And something that we all have in common, researchers, designers, engineers, we all love systems. It just creeps mm -hmm. up on us. Yeah. You know, we're like, hey, what cool. we need is scale. We need systems. We need practices. We need these things in place. And those are all good things, I think. Yeah. But it oftentimes pushes the pendulum towards automation. Well, we can just use this, you know, this one recruiting methodology. We know it's consistent. It works for our system. But does it really empower our humans to talk to our other humans in their moment of need, probably not, you know, sometimes, but probably not. Yeah. It's like people get really stuck on being the wizards kind of mm -hmm. instead of just like meeting. Yeah. And we don't really have to be that close to the machine anymore. So you would think that right. would make space to be yeah. closer to the humans, but. Yeah. That's been, you know, the, uh, the interesting thing about how people are, are talking now about 
conversational design is you think like, oh, it's supposed to be based in human conversation. So it should be more about the humans. And it seems to be coming even more about the technology, right? It's more about, oh, we're just going to build a bot or we're just going to have some machine learning in a cloud with a speaker that talks to you in sort of a disappointing, underwhelming way. And that's going to be conversational. And it's it's even taking less advantage of this opportunity to just clear the technology out of the way. Totally. It's such a good point. Like most of these research tools have been designed for scale, not for human understanding. Right. You know, it's so easy right now to just order up 10 general humans to look at my app. And in probably two hours, I could have 10 general humans giving me feedback. But what attachment those people have or what you know, real human relationship those people have to whatever I'm working on is probably tenuous. Don't you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. But I I feel like I've seen so often how people like want that. (laughs) They're like, yeah, exactly. It's tenuous and they don't care. So we have to make them care. And it's like, no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, funny when you were mentioning collaboration in the beginning, because one of the most common questions we hear a lot from researchers both on the the design side and on the actual research team side, it's like, I need to, you know, I need to do a better job of like getting buy-in to my research plans and my organization. Yeah. And collaboration or like doing it live, like just conduct research live in a conference room and invite some people to watch. It'll be messy. You don't know. It's hard to predict, but get your real customers doing something in their real day-to-day context. And I guarantee when you involve stakeholders and they see these people, you know, doing real things, not following a script or executing like a usability task list, you will find they're more bought in. But that's not the model. People want, no, but I want to show them some stats to prove the ROI. I'm like, no, 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 that's not <laughs> how human understanding works. Yeah. Right. And the thing is, like, for if anybody anybody who has interviewed people out in the world to understand things, to design systems, you know, which is like all of us in this conversation, but, you know, not a tremendous amount of people out in the world. You live, like viscerally, you see how if you are talking to the right person, you get good data, right? And this is true for like a generative, like ethnographic kind of stuff or a usability test. Like if you have somebody who's not really representative of somebody who wants your stuff or needs to use it or it's meaningful in any way or has that attachment you're talking about, like you are, you're going to have a garbage usability test. Like I've done this. I've, I've done usability tests with people who were bad recruits and what they do is they don't look at whatever you're trying to test as a thing that they're using. They step back and they see it as an artifact and they rate it. They totally see it like a picture and you can feel it because they flip into like opinion mode. Yeah. They're like, oh, I don't really care for that. You. Yeah. Yeah. But you can do like I, I've i done a ton of paper prototype testing and you can draw like three crappy boxes on a sheet of paper and tell the person like, OK, imagine you're in this scenario and here's what these boxes represent. Like accomplish this task and you can have a totally useful, fruitful exercise with that person because they get right into it and they're like, oh yeah, I had this problem yesterday and it was driving me nuts. And so I would do this and I do that. And oh, I don't understand this part. And and you're like, wow. And there's no way if you're just running people through like usertesting.com or something like that, you have no right. idea if they're just doing it and stepping back and saying like, oh, I'm seeing this as as an artifact that isn't meaningful to me, as opposed to, oh, I'm interacting with something that solves a problem that I feel deeply. Yeah, totally. There, there's a great quote. I've, I saw it, I think it was like a few months ago, um, Dr. Sam Ladner, who's a researcher, she, she was just like saying, for anybody wondering about, you know, your research being challenged for not being empirical enough. Empirical research means observable, discernible, or knowable. No idea why people think qual research with a few real human participants is not empirical. Mm. Right. You know, it's like this this quest that people internally, especially large organizations, get involved in of like, no, this needs to be statistically significant, you know, a large sample size data for us to make real business decisions based on it. And it somehow devalues this one-on-one real-life context you know, human yeah. observation. It's yeah, fascinating. It's, it's weird. It's almost like we're pitting products as if they're kind of running for office. And we're like, what are the campaign yeah. numbers <laughs> yeah. totally. on this button? Totally. How is it polling? How yeah. is my button polling? <laughs> yeah. 
well, it's hard to argue with the, those, you know, the large data and especially in, in, you know, if you have an engineering culture at your organization, you can't go wrong arguing with data. You know, nobody will say, well, that's not logical or that's not rational. Look at that experiment. Look at that experimental data. It's yeah. all real. But you say, like, I talked to four people on a Tuesday, you know, in their homes. We did some light ethnography. They're like, well, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is that those numbers, those big numbers could be even like way less meaningful because you're working from whatever data sets you have. And it's like, why those data sets? You know, just because yeah. yeah. um, data is measurable doesn't mean it's the most meaningful. It just means that's where you have yeah. the sensors set up. Yeah. And so you can have these large data sets that are completely missing the real world context. And so you're really missing the larger problem and you're optimizing for the local maximum and all this stuff. But yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, it's all computers watching people use computers, like you were saying. <laughs> it's like, you know, and it's They're not- studying us. Right, right. <laughs> Which to be fair, you know, maybe they'll get better at us soon then. So maybe we're, we're going down the wrong path. Maybe oh, we're we headed to the matrix, over, man. To the machine. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I think it's also interesting because- I hadn't actually connected these worlds um, before you mentioned your work with the Alzheimer's uh, organization. Mm, yeah, because it kind of reminds me like way back. Um, I remember we used to go to the neurologists all the time and they would ask the same set of questions every time. And it was kind of like they were they were having to use a protocol that they had um, to kind of determine uh, where where you were. And it was so frustrating because there were all these rules around like how someone could answer. So as like someone's relationship to speech changes, it may not be that they actually have lost meaning, right? It may be that the meaning has just transmuted. Such an interesting example. Yeah. Early on in my career when it was all like user testing and, and that sort of thing, and there wasn't the space for research. Um, I think that's where also I similarly had that kind of like emotional reaction of frustration because it was like, okay, so we have statistics on how we think people are doing user using our product or you know, to Alzheimer's, we have statistics on like how well or how how progressed we think that you are, but it doesn't really meet the goal of like, okay, so what are we doing here? Are we building a better product? Are we like helping someone, you know, live in the world? There, totally. There was well, no goal so there. much of the culture probably comes over from that. We all have an idea somewhere, you know, most of us that work on products digital products, whatever, in our mind, when we think about research, some part of us thinks about a PhD with a lab coat asking, let's say, even medically authorized questions to adjust for bias and these sort of more capital S scientific methodologies. Mm. And I think the reality of qual research and any kind of like UX research in part of the design process, it is a little bit of a different beast. We're not executing the exact same, you know, medically sort of driven questions every time. We're, we're, we're trying to get inspiration from human beings. And I think internally, sometimes the research gets pushed to be this objective, holy grail scientific thing at, yeah. at a lot of organizations, you know, and then that clouds it. Yeah. And then you kind of like kind of miss the mark totally because... Mm -hmm you know, what, what's your goal here? Like, is that, and, yeah. and, and it ignores the social context of like, when people are asked questions, you are putting them, whether your intention is that or not, whether you say you can get them wrong or not, you're putting them in like kind of yeah. a school context if you don't allow the conversation to happen. Yeah. And I, w I would notice yeah. a lot with my dad, like how, how like upset he'd get after those questions. Cause he just, he was an A student. So I think he just kind of felt like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. he, he was an immigrant. So like getting yeah. things right was like pretty, pretty drills into his brain and there was yeah. no kind of flexibility mm -hmm. there. And, and so the intentions totally get messed up because the doctor's there to like help you, but instead they've kind of like created this new emotional tension that like would kind mm -hmm. of take over the whole day or week. Like it, and eventually we just stopped going. Wow. Yeah, this this reminds me of this is why the way Oliver Sacks worked was so powerful. He he took a really ethnographic method of meeting people like in their context and and mm. not seeing people as deficient. Right? right. He would always he would go to these individuals and say, oh, I want to learn how you are in the world and what that means to you and how you experience the world. 
as a whole person in your context. And then he would write these stories of these people. And, and that's why his work was so powerful. And that's why he had insights that you couldn't get through these other methods. Because these other mm. methods, they have a scale, right? And they measure right. the patient against this scale and they tick boxes. Right. And Oliver Sacks would go to them and say, okay, I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to try to understand what it's like for you as an individual. And he would he would just see people who are like, okay, so you're not uh, perceiving things like most people, but that doesn't mean that you're deficient. That means that you are, you're a whole person, but, but you're this, you know, you do things in this idiosyncratic way. And, yep. and I think that's why he was so, uh, you know, beloved and inspirational and why he was able to uh, uncover some, some really interesting things was he didn't come in trying to fit people into boxes. He came in just yeah. trying to understand the whole person in their context. He used himself a lot, right? So he'd be like, it's like that time when you remember a story and it's a story you've been told and you think it's your memory, but it's actually not something that happened to you, right? Or he he would kind of really go there and just keep it to, to you know, brains are weird as opposed to yeah. your brain is weird, <laughs> yeah. which is kind yeah. of why I love so much like research is weird. Like, yeah. like let's just embrace yeah. that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we got to print more of those stickers. I forgot about that one. I, I had that yeah. one too. And it's messy that way. Yeah, because yeah. people are messy. And you still have to do that, like measure what you can measure, right? Because you want to know like, oh, is this happening to a lot of people, right? Or what are the, what are the correlations with these other factors in the population? But I, I think the other thing is that, that people think that just because they're measuring something, they have statistical significance. Yeah. And so we'll talk to people who are like, oh yeah, I have like, a thousand users use my app every month, but I'm doing quant. And it's like, my friend, you do not have statistical significance with like the number of data points that you're measuring. <laughs> right, right. But you can talk to 10 people and you can see legitimate patterns in behavior. Totally. And, and, but totally. there's still, but, but everybody starts from the quantitative, uh, like level of confidence, right. And say like, right. okay, you need, you know, X number of, of thousands of people, whatever. And then they apply that. That's the wrong standard, right? It's applying a standard yeah. for one type of data to another type of data. Yep. But, and, and if you talk to any of these people, like this is what blows my mind, like any of, of the like managers or engineers or designers who really feel a lot more comfortable focusing on the quantitative stuff. And it's like, how do you make decisions in your life? Do you just look at a mm. spreadsheet? <laughs> no. Should we move to LA? Let me Make a spreadsheet. Yeah. 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 Did you just make a spreadsheet of like all the cities and right. and run the numbers and say, okay, I'm moving to this block in Silver Lake. No, you thought about like, what kind of life do I want to live? How am I going to work? Um, well, you know. and add to the fear, you know, there's already this fear of qual methods. Although I think designers are most frequently the ones absolutely open and super accepting and excited for like qual feedback on, on, you know, your average product team. Of course, lots of other roles are too, but I see this huge push from designers more often to say like, yeah, we love this type of insight. It really helps us put together the puzzle of, you know, what, what direction we want to head in or just gives us some more insight about humans, but that's already a battle in a lot of places. Yeah. And then when you on the concept of doing it completely unstructured, you know, forget the script, forget the facilitator guide, forget asking, you know, from our more like scientific cousins in medical research, the same language and exact same questions to introduce rigor. If you start throwing that stuff out and you're like, yeah, we just want to like talk to some people and see what their experience with our product is like in the real world. It's like, what, well, why, what do you want to, don't want to waste your time. Yeah. <laughs> That's not rigorous. Yeah. And it's too, and it's too cheap. Right. Because I've I've talked to researchers <laughs> in places where uh, the people with budget authority are and and sway in the organization or are, are willing to give some time and money to research, but it has to look like research, right? It has to be oh, we have to bring people into a lab. Oh, we have to do eye tracking. It's like if you just say, well, no, we just want to talk to people where they are. It's like what right. you're just talking to people, really, and that's the most powerful. Yeah, but there's also a huge fear, and this is a legitimate fear, that people are going to do, quote unquote, bad research, which could be a good yeah. T-shirt. But it's like, you know, <laughs> it's understandable because it is easy to weaponize research. Yep. You know, I've certainly seen that happen. It's easy to take, 
you know, uh, qual study and sort of manipulate the findings to your own agenda, whatever that is. So that is a totally legitimate fear, you know, and I've experienced that too, where you're working with, you know, and we do it too unintentionally. We're like, actually, you know, let's just cut that user three out. I don't like what they had to say. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that that breeds a sort of a totally understandable concern of like, well, if you're not introducing this structure and this rigor, this isn't research. You're literally call right. it what it is. You're just talking to people. And I don't, and maybe that's just semantics. I don't think that's a good reason to not do it. I just, I thought I should mention that there, there is that legitimate concern, but I think there's a way to balance those two desires. You know, you can right. be rigorous and meet people in the moment with attachment to what you're building and not do quote unquote bad research. Yeah. And I think, so the place for the rigor though, because everybody worries about the rigor, like in the method, like, are we asking the same question to enough people and, and people totally neglect the rigor at the very front of the process, which is what's our goal and what are our research questions? Like, this is what I hammer on people is like, because so often I've talked to people even in large technology companies with really robust research departments. And they say, oh, yeah, our project manager just kind of thinks up studies for us to do. And it's like, no, yeah, before yeah. you do any research at all, you need to be very clear about what your business goal is, like what makes you successful. Yep. And then you go through the process of saying, OK, now that I know I have a sense of like, these things have to happen to make me successful. Then you're like, okay, what do I need to know? What information am I missing? And only then, only after you form your question, do you know, oh, do I need a measurement or do I need a description? Do I need quantitative or qualitative? And then you pick your method. Because if you have a clear goal and a clear higher order question, yeah, then you can just talk to people because then you can use that information. You can say, okay, did what we get answer our question to help us meet our goal? And that's where the rigor is. And people blow that off all the time that's such and a good just point. focus totally... on, oh, let's do the thing. Like we sometimes will talk to startups who come to us for help and they're like, oh yeah, we talk to customers like every week. And I say, well, why do you talk to customers? And they're like, well, because it's good to talk to customers. Right. And I say, if you don't have that clear goal and clear question, that's where the bias creeps in. And that's where the cherry picking yep. anecdotes to support being right comes in because people really want to be right. And people are terrified of looking like they don't know the answer in front of their colleagues. Like this is one of our like yeah. giant themes that we hammer on a lot. That's so true. It's such a good point. And it's like that com that creeps in so fast because nobody really thinks about the goal setting as like a critical part of the process. And there's so much pressure to move fast and execute these studies and it's like, look, the key thing is we need 14 completes by Thursday. So let's just go. Don't do that. <laughs> and the goal setting is such a huge part of it. Well, and especially because the thing that creeps in to so many research projects is will they use it or will they buy it? Yeah. You know, at the heart and soul of so many questions. And that's fundamentally like a market yeah, research Yeah, it's thing. different. You know, I mean, it's related to behavioral UX research, but it's a little different flavor. Yeah. And you can't ask people that question. Like we always... I tell people like there's your research questions, what you want to know, which is like, how likely are people to buy my thing? Right. And there's what you can ask people. And too often, especially in like surveys and things, people put that question to the participants, right? They're like, how likely are you to buy this? No one totally. can answer that question. That is a meaningless, impossible question because people just make up an answer. So when you are, are talking to the people you're working with, like, like what, what are the big pieces of advice or things you tell people who are in these in environments where it's like, oh, like I believe in, in qual stuff, but I have this battle or everybody just wants to make sure that we're just ticking a box or something like that. Like what, how have you helped people like do things in a more productive uh, way? Well, I, I hope we have. I'm not sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, the humility. Well, you know, we try, we try. I mean, it's an interesting question because I was just I'm, I'm thinking the things that are going through my mind is over the years, we've had to kind of modularize Ethneo to support all these wild research workflows, which are very unique to each team and organization. You know, some teams have a list for internal you know, stakeholder, like marketing team of like certain kinds of, of existing customers with certain behavior, and they need to reach out to those people to schedule interviews. And that's super legit. Other organizations really do want to do the intercepts, but they, like you were making the point earlier, 
they can't really do live testing because of logistics or many other reasons, but they want to use an intercept to schedule people three weeks out. Also totally legit. Some people want to use variables from their application to only show an intercept in an app to people that have exhibited X behaviors. So I feel like I've been in a rabbit hole for the last, I don't know, like four, six years of enabling all these different workflows Mm -hmm. to make sure that each team for each study and each team member can support like that. I feel like that's what I've been most focused on is like accommodating these different workflows because early on, and this is something that, you know, we're talking about said Harold earlier. And I talked about a lot years ago in the agency days when we were doing studies for all sorts of different clients, you can only go so far being like, you need to do this sort of one way. You know, because the reality of of the needs are, especially something about research, man, it's like there are very complex differences to the each particular study. I don't know why, you know, they they just they just have their own. It's like each one is a living, breathing kind of, you know, setup. And now with research operations, you also have internal teams who are also basically in charge of making sure the logistics work smoothly and in compliance Mm -hmm. And with, you know, involved collaboration for those kind of needs. So I guess that that, that's the thing that pops in my mind is I feel like the way we approach it is saying, which particular workflow are you trying to accomplish right now? Now let's tackle, are you talking about a list of existing people? Are you talking about intercepting people? Are you talking, what's Mm -hmm. the incentive ecosystem like? Are you allowed to pay them? Are you a government agency that has to do charity? Are they international? Do we have currency and cost of living concerns? You know, that's sort of my world these days. It's like, is figuring out the, these paths mm-hmm. and, you know, not making the world's most complicated interface to accommodate them. Right. right. <laughs> and, and so, yeah. that, I mean, that's a really, really important point because everybody's looking for the one right way. Everybody's mm-hmm. looking for the right answer, even for research, right? It's like, what's the one way? Because people are concerned about bias and they're concerned about, defensibility of the findings. And I think that message that you're giving that there are so many paths because it's just like it's research teams and organizations are just another sort of people in a social context. And people forget that. They're like, oh, out in the world, when we're not at work, we're like humans doing weird things for weird reasons. And you're like, oh, but at work, we're like super (laughs) rational and suddenly we're not like that anymore. And so I think just even giving people permission to say, you know what, find the way that's right for you as long as it helps you meet your goal and like serve your customers and your users and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I think we gravitate towards pushing or, you know, advising that people do not automate the humans talking to humans so much that they're basically outsourcing it all. That's one thing I think we universally talk about. But a lot of people that seek out Ethneo are already on that train. You know, like if they even find us, they're like, yeah, we've maybe been doing what we call sort of, you know, general humans or, you know, these demographic type of participant recruiting but they're like, we're something missing. You know, we're not finding the kind right. of participants that seem to be really engaging with us. I think so. So we probably have a biased experience, but that's definitely something that I end up pushing is like, don't abandon the real life moments, the real life context, just because it's a little bit messy. Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine like people kind of show up somewhat expecting just like at the software level, something closer to a Google experience or a Google Docs experience. More generic. More generic. But then actually, like, it must be difficult to kind of push the expertise back on the interface. Because personally, like, I like it when that happens. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't really have a great idea of this. I'm open to it. But I could imagine that if people are being measured at work by their opinion on a tool, which feels like an unfortunate thing that we've inherited from engineering culture, then... I can almost like hear the conversation that's like, oh, well, I don't know. It didn't do this, 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 and this. And you're just like, uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or, or also, and there's another version of that. I think it's super similar is that people just have a lot of pressure to execute the research. Yeah. The bottom line, like, I just need to get this done. Like, yeah, sure. You guys can talk all day long about context and people's real world scenarios. But what does that even mean? A, B, I need this done. You know, I need to hand this research off and I know I can go to a million tools that just will give me quote unquote human feedback and I'll be done and I'll give them my credit card. Yeah, that is, that's so unfortunate because I think what we've found, and I'm hoping that this is a moment 
for self-reflection in our industry because we've found what we're putting things on rails and just being, quote, a delivery driven organization, which we hear a lot. Like we hear that phrase a lot. It's exactly that. Like, ah, you know, that's great. Understanding humans is great. I just need to like tick this box, get it done. And you're missing out. It's like, why are we even bothering? Why are we even doing these things where we're creating like software, other products, tools, and services that we want to be meaningful in people's lives? Like that's the aspiration. You talk to designers, engineering product leaders, CEOs, whatever. And they say, oh yeah, it's really important that we have meaningful products and services in people's lives. And then they're like, oh yeah, screw the meaning, get it done. Right. Those two <laughs> things do not go together. Yeah. I think there's a lot of fear. Like I, I went to go see yeah. this really awesome movie a, a couple weeks ago. Oh wow, yeah, already two weeks ago about um, the company General Magic. And they, oh yeah, yeah. With Tony Fidel. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, cool. Yeah. If you have a chance to see this movie, it's great. I think it's just called General Magic. Oh, I'm totally writing it down. Yeah. For some reason, like the the woman who made it has a day job. So she seems like not too concerned with like getting it well distributed. And I'm like, come on, everybody would want to see this movie. <laughs> um, but the way that I saw it presented was just, you know, in this very silicon valley tech scenario and it, it was funny because people were like pointing to this m movie where truly like the nerdiest of the nerds like poured out their souls and like showed this like deep vulnerability and people's reaction to it were like oh that's why we're more delivery focused and it was so <laughs> frustrating <laughs> because it's like well but there was so much beauty in that and so much optimism in that that we have totally lost and like clearly, you know, General Magic's product was a major precursor to the the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who worked on that, like it was like the founder of eBay and um, Tony Fidel, who did actually end up being the engineer who worked on the iPhone and made that happen. And the iPod I yeah. think, as well. And 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 so totally. to see that as like the a nest, didn't he also do nest? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was an intern at General Magic. Like he wow. was a Really, oh, wow. really intense intern. Like they, that was like kind of one of the funny parts of the movie where everyone was like, oh yeah, that guy, <laughs> he kept calling us. He kept calling us. He kept calling us. Oh, like, that's so it's funny because I heard him give a talk at, at that Brooklyn beta conference that sort of was a few years ago. And he said, my only advice to designers who are starting out is forget about the role you can find. Just find the people who you think are exciting and don't stop calling them. Call them so they give you a job, any job. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what he did. Apparently, they yeah. had they even yeah. had the HR person on, and she was like, "Yeah, he kept calling me. He was really annoying." <laughs> She's like, "It was a weird scene. There were bunnies hopping around. Whatever. I came in, I did my job. Like she was, she was great comic relief." I can't wait to see that. Well, even the name General Magic, like, and I, I feel like this that whole ecosystem tony fidel and that story and iphone and ipod that level of you know art or polish or whatever you want to call it that went into those products and that have you know basically transformed our world arguably yeah art that art, creative side that's an accepted part of the design world that like of course this incredible you know energy and hard to define process and you know what makes a truly beautiful truly transformational product that acceptance does not exist in research the the creativity of research the art of research that's not something you hear talked about at companies you know when you're interviewing yeah. researchers you're not like what's your most artistic and creative example of like research <laughs> methodology you're like, what? what are you talking about like yeah. who cares but design it's such an acknowledged part of the ecosystem how can you set up a rule to guarantee every design will be awesome you can't and nobody expects that there would yeah, be yeah but for some reason in the search ecosystem we have an expectation but based you know partially on what we're talking about earlier, like the myth of the, the objectivity stuff that the research itself should be bulletproof and guarantee results and all this kind of stuff so it's just fascinating yeah, yeah. so so uh, uh, yeah what we've been trying to do a little bit is redefine research is not a separate thing, but really part of the design because it is because you can't design without information. Yeah, I love that. And and so we've been talking a little bit about evidence-based design because that's what it is. It's not a separate function. Otherwise, you're just making things up. So it should be considered the, a part of the same thing. Like your design team has to include 
the research function, whether it's a specific role or people taking that on as part of their job, like it's not optional. And you look at Apple, like Apple is a great example because, right, worth a trillion dollars has changed the world in so many ways. And it was because unlike other technology companies, they embraced making an emotional connection with people. Yeah. Yeah. I would say one of the huge differences too between General Magic and Apple, just given this movie, was actually research, you know? No way. Yeah. Because at that phase, I mean, Erica has this like really awesome footage. Yeah. My my Dharma initiative tape of Steve Jobs. Yeah. (laughs) That I show. (laughs) Yeah. So I found this, like somebody, somebody kind of slipped me a YouTube link a long time ago. And it's, it's part of my like talks and workshops is when Steve Jobs was back, because because the, there's this whole myth of the genius, right? Apple, genius design, Steve Jobs was a genius. He just knew things that other people couldn't know. So, of course, you can't, like, compete with Apple with research. And But that was all marketing, because in this video, it's Steve Jobs at a next computing chalk talk. And he's like, hello, friends. Hey, so we've been spending some time talking to people out in the field and looking at our products and understanding why people buy no our way. products and not he said other that? Yes. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And and he talks about all this stuff and he's like, I've been talking to you and we've been talking about all this data and and some things have really come to light and I'm gonna share them with you. And so of course, of course they did research. But then this like shiny wall of mystery came up because he was a the most amazing marketer the world has ever seen. And people are like, oh, we just have to copy. We just have to cargo cult this stuff. We just have to be assholes in black turtlenecks and everything needs to be (laughs) shiny. Yeah. 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 And and we'll be like Apple. And it's like, no, like, of course they did like so much research and there was so much stuff that was so, that's why they're so secretive, right? Because all of that stuff. Well, yeah. And and like, just what about that? Both of those things are true. You know, sure. Yeah. Yeah, You're a genius. Genius. Do you need research? Yeah. You need research too. Good luck. Yeah. You know, like it's not, it's not like, well, which way will we go? Will right. we be geniuses or will we research? I don't know. It's a tough call. What's with this like kind of dichotomy between like genius and knowing things and curiosity? Like the smart, <laughs> yeah. the smartest people that I know, like are extremely curious about the world right. and, and ask questions all the time. I and mean, it's mostly what they do, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the curi- it's having curiosity. But I, you might be right that marketing teams because of the way they present these things after they're done, they wrap it up with a bow and make it seem like it was sort of manifest destiny to build this product. That might be part of the cause of us thinking about like, well, I never have a hope of building something transformational because I I didn't have that type of process. Exactly. That's why people ask me for uh, research case studies all the time. Cause like, oh, we have to make a case. And I said, you know, if it really worked, that's going to be a huge trade secret. Like people aren't going to put their research <laughs> case true. studies out there because it's in it's every organization's best interest to make it seem like they just do things in a special way that nobody else can do. And if you expose your process and you're like, yeah, we had this really important insight because we knew, observed things in the world that anybody could do who can observe things like that lowers your competitive barrier. Right. It's like Albert Einstein observed things about the world. Well, and you see some founders talk about it. It's, it always is like a breath of fresh air when people are open about it. Like I think the Airbnb one is, is that the most famous at this point of like how we were forced to do research by our VC funders. So they made us go to New York and sit with, you know, new hosts. And then that transformed Airbnb. Yeah, probably. Is that, I feel like there's a few of those now, yeah. but you're right. They're few and far between. And it's like, we all know them now because there's only like four of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I kind of understand also like the secrecy aspect a little bit more as kind of a way to protect, I don't know, the designers or the creators from the business yeah. side a little bit in the sense that it is so tough to come, you know, Opening up research is terrifying because in a way it just feels like you're you're giving everyone ammunition to use against you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so you're just like, okay, yeah, you can be a part of this too. But if there's some other agenda that that 
participant has as a stakeholder on the product, especially if it's, you know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, I need to maximize my certain KPI, they're going to now just use the research as a means for um, pushing their own. So you've escaped like I am the user, but now it's like, oh, my, there's this persona out in the world named Bob. And like, now I'm just connecting all of my, yeah. My hopes yeah. and dreams to Bob. And so you get these kind of like really And Bob weird, thinks you're stupid. Yeah, these like really weird <laughs> dynamics that I think are really tough, especially especially for new designers to kind of like go up against because they are kind of following information and, and getting a sense of what the next decision should be without like a perfect case, without and, and that's really what we try to help designers do is like build the case better. Yeah. And make that a separate activity so that you don't feel this like vulnerability. Yeah. Because the data, you know, it, I think that's a really, a really good point like that both of you have been making about the political uses of data. And that's something that researchers are so unprepared to deal mm. with. Right. Because they come into it with good faith. They come yeah. into it with like, my job is uncovering the truth. Yeah. And then when they show up with their very good findings after a very rigorous process and those findings are either ignored or used against them, which is something I hear about all the time, then they're blindsided and they're like, what, all I can do is gather is find more truth. And and why is the truth not helping me? Like that's a huge problem. And so I think a big message is that organizations have to get their houses in order before they can do this. Like you have to have clear goals. You have to have psychological safety for your team. Uh, You have to have a, a public commitment to an external standard of truth, right? You can't have the highest paid person's opinion wins. You have to say, okay, here are the sources of data that we trust. Here's why we trust them. Here's the decisions we're going to make. And here's how we're going to use data to inform those decisions. That's the part that you absolutely have to have in place and shared by your entire team before you start gathering evidence and putting into that process. Mm. Because too many people expect that like, oh, gathering evidence is going to make us all better people. But no, the critical thinking and the trust within the organization has to come first before you start introducing new information or new sources of information. Or it's just going to be like a religious battle about different people's sources of truth. It's just yeah, going to be like an awkward Thanksgiving dinner. Awkward. Yeah. <laughs> Every quarter, another awkward Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. <laughs> About your research. Well, part of it is the, is the hierarchy of design and research in large organizations too. You know, Absolutely. they're fitting into a larger context that has, you know, a very understandable existing hierarchy. And then you have these teams. I mean, design, in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, you guys know this inside now, but what, 10, 20 years ago, it started this, I think, increased, you know, role in the hierarchy, in the product hierarchy. And mm-hmm. then, you know, research is still, you know, it's down the totem pole. And so th- those realities, they're just there. You know, somebody's somebody's making the call and it's definitely not the researcher. Maybe it's the designer. Yeah, there's no chief evidence officer, but there should be. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a hard thing. And I, I think it's because... Like we have to acknowledge that our organizations, our product teams are also made out of people. So mm-hmm. so a lot of times what we advise uh, the designers and researchers to do is turn that qualitative process onto their organization first, right? And, yes. and treat the people yes. in the organization like their users and customers and say, okay, you're not just going to come to a customer and say, yeah, you got to believe this thing. You have to position it as like, here's what's in it for you. And you have to know what's meaningful to them and know their hopes and fears and behavior patterns. And so that's step one is understanding how your organization makes decisions and why it's like that and what their habits are. And then once you understand how that works, then you can say, oh, now I know at what points in the process that introducing these insights will be the most productive. Yeah, I love that. I think hand in hand too, You can also say a practical piece of advice to challenge this stuff is to force by any means necessary, whether it's food bribery or actual bribery or booze, your key stakeholders to participate in not only observing the sessions, you know, while half, half laptoping, half observing, which is fine, but in the, but in the interpretation of findings after each user and each day, 
it's not that hard to say like, okay, you know, <clears throat> Louise, what did you think were the key things that came up in that last user? And, and we all do it together. And, you know, that's a great way to avoid the weaponizing and the politicizing because you can sort of navigate through, well, yeah, she did say that, but what about this? You know, and then you kind of do whatever favorite card sorting, you know, collaborative analysis together you can. But if they're in that process, if these key stakeholders we're talking about are in that process, they feel bought into choosing participants to the individual sessions and then the synthesis. I feel like that's the collaboration you're talking about it that practically is kind of easy to do. It's just scary and hard to make time for. Yes. Yeah. And people think it's below their pay grade often. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've Why hired do I have to somebody. It's your job. I'm not going to yeah. do your job for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else is in charge of knowing things. I just make decisions. <laughs> Why would you want to delegate learning cool wait, that's shit? Second, wait, that's the second good t-shirt you came up with. <laughs> somebody else is in charge of knowing things. It's not my job. Well, cool. I think we're we're coming up on uh, on our time here, but... Thank you so much, Nate. It's been it's been great to talk oh, to you. Yeah, and I, so I, yeah, I talk about this stuff all day. So, uh, cool. so it's it's cool. This is this is fantastic, and uh, I hope everybody takes heart there and keeps keeps fighting the uh, the good fight. And uh, yeah, we'll in- include a link to uh, to Ethnio in the show notes along oh, with yeah. the general magic movie. And all oh yeah, other. yeah. Cool. Yeah, I can't wait to watch that. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Cool. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you for thinking of me on this. And, uh, and uh, you know, hopefully somebody listens. <laughs> yeah, I think so. We have a few, a few people yeah. out there who do. Okay. My, my mom will definitely listen to this one. Okay, Larissa's <laughs> mom. Oh, my gosh. I will tell my mom, too. That's too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So- <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this one really kind of explained a little bit more what I do because it's it's difficult. It's always, it's always <laughs> tough for the parents still. And I am so sorry to hear about your experiences with the dementia stuff too. I feel like all of us have those stories now, which is terrifying. Like we're yeah. all touched by that particular disease, which is so crazy. Yeah. It's the next, it's the next frontier. Yeah. The, the our uh, customer at the Alzheimer's Society said it just turned out now this year, last year, it's the number one killer in the UK. Above heart disease, above cancer. Because wow. people are living long enough, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. Right. Number of factors. I think also there's been traditionally more progress maybe in like with something like heart uh, disease. I don't know. Yeah, that makes I sense. I don't know about that one. Yeah. No, but yeah. Just, like people are eating better and just living better. Maybe. Yeah. But the other thing that blew my mind that's just interesting is yeah. no other disease affects the ecosystem of people around them's health like dementia does. So like mm. straight up. If you're a caretaker or your family member is suffering, you actually have health consequences because it's years and years and years of stress yeah. and hardship. Oh, and- yeah. That totally makes sense. I mean, my mom is now like 67 and she's in better health now than she was 10 years ago. That's tough. But there's a lot. There is a lot of good research progressing. Yeah. Yeah. We had the ability to work with a neuroscience institute last year, and that was really fascinating because we kind of. You know, I think really taking the perspective on it, and I think this is maybe a big shift for clinical research. And we worked, so their work was not clinical. It was blue skies research. Yeah, total pure neuroscience um, research. And okay. I think just like somehow setting the public's expectation that, because it's hard because you have such a personal experience of it. And so then knowing that like, okay, this is actually brain, you know, we know more about space than we know about the brain. That's like, that's like kind of a tough thing to that handle. That is crazy. But it's also, I think in some ways helpful because you're like, oh, this is, this is big. And I don't know. There, yeah. there are ways, there are ways. I feel like in many ways I brought my family together. So it all gets uh, very complicated. Yeah. But it kind of, I feel like also it sort of highlights the complexity of other areas that we tend to minimize more than, than serious healthcare issues. Because if you're just talking about like, oh, we're doing working on something for database administrators, yeah. it's easier to be like, well, whatever. Mm. But when you're talking about these sort of like life-threatening diseases and impacts on families and groups, you're like, holy shit, this is a good reason to really understand these people's experience. It's yeah. interesting. Oh, that's so, yeah, that's so cool. This week we have totally been talking about how the emphasis of research is always on user research as if that's, you know, one user and that people are not talking about 
the relationships between people at all. And we don't really have a great way to model that. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have the vocabulary for designing a system so that it supports people in their social context with their network of relationships. Totally. Even though, even when we talk about social media, right, we're still talking about like, oh, I'm a, I'm a user experience designer. I'm, I'm designing for that interaction between one, one yeah. person and the system. And well, luckily nothing's gone wrong with building social media. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Everybody should that just- That scales and gotten great. <laughs> yeah. No issues there. Nope. Everything's fine. <laughs> Everything's totally fine. Yeah, having having compassion. That's the other thing. That mm-hmm. with, instead of empathy, let's stop talking about empathy. Yeah, compassion is <laughs> such a good word. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't understand why people don't use it as much. I guess it doesn't feel as hardcore. Like empathy feels more hardcore. No, no. You know what I think? I think it's because compassion involves you, right? Somehow mm. people can say they have empathy and there's still a distance. But I think compassion, it sounds like you have some responsibility towards another person, hmm. right? It's just like the uh-huh. good place. What do we owe each other, right? <laughs> it's, it's it's exactly that. And I think that's a good, like that would be a great sentiment for all design and product and service teams to really think about like, well, what do we owe each other as humans? And, and, Fascinating. and start from there. Because we're all yeah. humans. Can't get away from it. Sorry. Yeah. It's true. It's yeah. true. Awesome. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you for making Ethneo. Ta- it's taught me oh, a lot thanks. about Thank you guys for using user it. research. Yeah, because yeah. we want oh, people. I'm so, glad. I'm so glad. Even when we put it in places, like I'm always, I find when I make the screeners, I'm always sometimes concerned, like who even goes here? And then I find out <laughs> and it's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's something, it's, it's something interesting about those. Oh, and I know you guys do this too. Like when you put those open-ended questions in there, you know, tell me about what you're doing. I just skim through those all the time. Yeah. And I'm like, this is fucking interesting. Like, yeah. wow. Never you, know. You can even learn, learn stuff from that. And, and that, yeah. So much yeah. better than a click stream or yeah. any of that other. Yeah. So much better than Google Analytics. I wish that people used Ethneo instead of Google Analytics. <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. Or just or in addition. I'll take in addition. I'll take it. In addition. Yeah, I think so. They're I think they're com- I think they are complementary. I think, you know, Google Analytics does does have its place. You can learn things from there, but you need both. That is really yep. the bottom line. You need both. And so many people have their Google Analytics. I mean, even my I've even started jobs where they're just like, we have this hooked up, but we're really scared to look at it. <laughs> and you know, it's funny, like yeah. we've uh, over the years had some internal conversations about making, whipping up some analytics, even though it's not our expertise at all. And don't worry, we won't. But because <laughs> we have code everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, like we're like six people, but we get almost a billion page views a month because of that JavaScript, which you guys are familiar with. Yeah. And so we're, you were getting the data. We probably should do more stuff with this. And they're like, ah, who are we kidding? We don't know. We don't know that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> But it could even just be like, oh, confused about your Google Analytics? Ask yeah. some people some questions. <laughs> no, seriously. That's, yeah. Like we, we've That's done whole good. projects that way where they're like, we have Google Analytics. Uh, yeah. And then we just do qualitative research. And then Amazing. I love it. it really, yeah, I've never really gotten anything yeah. huge out of Google Analytics unless it's also had the complimentary. Yeah, because you're like, cool. A lot of people are clicking on this thing. That's cool. Yeah. What else was going on in the oh, world? Don't you, don't you guys feel like unless you're a super expert analytics person, it's like you can't really. I always feel like I look at it. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I got to get out of here. Like, I, this is so complicated. I, I think analytics are kind of losing their importance, to be honest, because like mm. we were trying to kind of. I, I at least I'll just speak for myself, was trying to kind of figure out, okay, what's our mule angle on analytics? And I read a lot of great books on it, but they're all like really specific to like, you know, carts and like e-commerce paths that are yeah. now pretty known. And now we have pretty good patterns for. Yeah. It's all these weird no- knobs and dials. And you were, yeah. yeah, I think, I think the point is like, you can get some good surface stuff. Like there's two levels there. You, there's, you can get the interesting surface stuff where you're like, oh, people are hitting this content a lot. So this is really popular. Like you can learn things about, about your content yeah. and, and your paths in that are interesting. But then 
Then there's a lot of like middle area where it's like, don't know what's going on. And then the other stuff is like really, really deep. And it's like, how many people actually need to go that deep where they're really setting up these sophisticated queries? And and it's like, yeah, if you're working, if you're doing e-commerce at like huge scale, you need to understand those really nuanced patterns if you're Amazon. But if you're an average, if you're like a content site or... I think, yeah. I think, and also it does, doesn't fit the model that we have now, right? If you are hosting your own site and you're having to like really understand every piece of like what you built and the performance of it, then analytics are really helpful because you're like, oh shit, I had no idea that this page like was super slow for people mm-hmm. or, you know, it would really kind of point out these, like yeah. give you a heat map. But now when people set up a site, they're actually just using a set of services. And so those services have taken away a lot of that complexity. And so they don't have to rely as much on the Google Analytics, but they still have it. And then they feel guilty for not looking at it. And they want their decisions to kind of be pulled from that more. But they kind so of- So sh- they're objective decisions. Yeah. And and all of those dashboards mm-hmm. are designed to kind of like make you engage with the analytics thing more because that's a product in and of itself. Like, I mean, yeah. I don't think Google Analytics is bad in that yeah. regard. I think that the Facebook ad stuff gets weird that way. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, it all goes back to forming your question or forming your query. Like Google Analytics is only as good as knowing what you need to know and and forming a good query. Yeah, people have this weird feeling that if they interact with more surface area of Google Analytics, they're more informed. Yeah, they like, I don't know, it like checks a box or... You know, I think it's scary, but it's like if you find out one interesting thing from Google Analytics and that's all that you use it for, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There's so much anxiety about like, oh, I'm not doing things right. And it's like if you're getting the information you need to be more confident and make better decisions, then you're you're there's no right. There's no one right for everybody. And the onus should be the other way. That's probably why there's so yeah, and there's probably I think that's one explanation of why all this mixed method stuff has picked up so much steam, at least in the research mm-hmm. kind of corner of the design world where everybody's acknowledging, yeah, sure, if you stick to one methodology, you're probably screwing up somehow. But at least if you do, you know, multiple redundant methods in the same study, whether it's quant versus quality, you know, however you want to slice and dice, you're probably increasing the likelihood that you're doing something decently rigorous. Yeah. Yeah. It's- all we can hope for. I just saw they just pr- approved that dementia case study. I'll send it to you guys. It just went up like Ooh, while wow. we were talking. Yeah, that would be yeah. cool. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll link to that too because I think that sort of thing will be really interesting to people on a, a lot of levels. Yeah. Cool. Oh, I got to oh. fix the post preview. Learning so much about the internet. <laughs> it keeps changing. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, cool. thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for spending this Pleasure. time with us. This will not be our, our last conversation, I'm sure. And thanks to both of your moms and all of our other <laughs> listeners out there. All the moms. All the moms. All the moms. <laughs> We're doing this for the moms who have done so much for us. And uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter at VOD, V-O-D underscore rocks. So if you have any questions, thoughts, uh things you'd like us to talk about hit us up there bye uh, yeah we <laughs> we have figured out our <laughs> awesome. got, i have to stop it's over it's over it's you over. can go home now the end do, go <laughs> maybe you're already home do something and else. you're like when is this episode gonna end <laughs> yeah no hey, we didn't we didn't talk about we got that person it was like you talked about pumpkins too much on that otherwise fantastic episode <laughs> oh yeah but you know it's awkward starting an episode sometimes yeah we, yeah. Do. we had a lot to say about the pumpkin festival which was terrible oh yeah the worst traffic of my life <laughs> <All> right <laughs> Thank you.